Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Sowing the seeds of cannabis and sounding the praise of our favorite plants, it's time to Hemp Resent. Our radio resident Hempo Sapien Vivian McPeak will present a weekly platform for guests and listeners to Hemp Resent about hemp and cannabis from the legal, activist, and reformist route. Let's round up and roll it up for our headmaster of hemp, Vivian McPeak. show where you can get your PhD in THC because you don't just want to burn it, you want to learn it. Seeking to defeat prohibition one interview at a time and advocating for the plant, the whole plant, and nothing but the plant. Join me for a weekly Reefer Radio Rebellion Against Prohibition as I speak with some of the principal risk takers, movers, and shakers, and history makers of the cannabis industry, culture, and reform movement. I'm your host, Vivian McPeak. I am the executive director of the world's largest annual cannabis policy reform event, the Seattle Hemp Fest, celebrating its 25th year and founded hempfest.org. I'm also the author of the book Protestable, a 20 year retrospective of Seattle Hemp Fest from AHA Publishing. Also found at HempFest.org. Transmitting from a fortified bunker under a ramshackle reef for Radio Warren and an undisclosed location deep within the rumbling bowels of underground Seattle. My goal is to spread the green flame of 420 truth in 30-minute increments. Today's guest on Hemp Present is Seattle business attorney Hillary Bricken from the Canalaw Group, who will be joining me in just under two minutes of my soapbox madness. Multiple states will legalize marijuana likely this year as 2016 is shaping up to be another red-letter year for the cannabis reform community. As many as 10 states are poised to follow Washington, Colorado, Oregon, Alaska, and Washington, D.C.'s lead by either legalizing or decriminalizing the nefarious green leafy vegetation. Activists in Nevada have secured enough signatures to place their initiative on the ballot. In addition, activities in California, Arizona, and Maine all look promising in terms of serious cannabis reform. Medical marijuana gains could be expected sometime soon in Michigan, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Ohio, New York, and Vermont, and beyond. Personally, I'm hoping that none of these states will look to my home state as a model because I think we've done the worst job of the four states that have decriminalized cannabis so far. Colorado allows anyone 21 and older to grow up to six plants, provided it's done in an enclosed, locked space. Here in my state, a non-patient cannot grow or possess a single pot plant. Previously, however, qualified medical patients could possess up to 24 ounces of usable cannabis or a 60-day supply. But after our state legislature recently passed the creatively titled Cannabis Patient Protection Act and subsequent Bill 2136, patients may only possess three ounces of cannabis. That's 19 ounces less. Previously, patients could grow up to 15 plants. Now in Washington State, after the Patient Protection Act, patients may grow four to six plants depending on the physician's authorization. Our state is protecting patients from what? Having an inadequate supply, apparently. Yet Alaska's new law allows anyone 21 and over to grow up to six plants. It also allows adults to possess the pot produced by the plants on the premises where the plants are grown. In Washington, we have seed-to-sale tracking madness. Any Oregon resident 21 and over can grow four plants and possess eight ounces of usable marijuana on hand, and the only terminal illness they need to have is life. 
In Colorado, you can gift an adult up to an ounce of cannabis. Here in Washington State, it's technically a felony just to hand a gram of weed to someone else or merely pass a joint. This is not the legalization I spent 30 years fighting for. In my opinion, it's commoditization. And this summer, the Washington State Legislature is essentially shuttering all medical marijuana dispensaries. They must close or transition by mid-July. Medical patients will just have to accept the 250 state legal pesticides allowed for cannabis headed to recreational stores and settle for the strains those stores decide to offer. This week, a Microsoft news story about foreign parents of sick children migrating to America for medical marijuana treatment told of them flocking to California, Oregon, and Colorado. The article didn't even mention our state because medical marijuana is going through so many changes. Don't get me wrong, I am thrilled to see the recreational pot stores, which I prefer to call adult personal use outlets, operating with relative impunity while Washingtonians drive up, walk in, buy some pot, and drive away without feeling the need to check their rearview mirror. I think it's great. And they had better make sure they don't get pulled over or they'll be faced with an unscientific 5 nanogram blood THC level that could land them with a DUI, even though 5 nanograms is no sign at all of impairment. And if that happens, the prudent thing for them to do is contact an attorney. Our state has a growing cadre of counselors schooled in all things canna law, including the Seattle-based canna law group. Hillary Brickin is an attorney at Harris Moore PLLC in Seattle, and she chairs the firm's canna law group and has earned a reputation as a fearless advocate for local businesses. Seen on Al Jazeera America, CNN, and Fox News, Hillary was named the 2013 top dealmaker by the Puget Sound Business Journal, one of the 100 most influential people in the cannabis industry in 2014 by the Cannabis Business Executive, and Marijuana Industry Attorney of the Year at the inaugural 2015 Dope Industry Awards. Hillary is also the lead editor of the Canalaw blog, and she's been gracious enough to join me today, sans her cane corso mastiff. Welcome, Hillary, to Cannabis Radio. <laughs> Thank you, Vivian. Glad to be here. And I'll point out that you are the Hillary with one L, a distinction that must have more significance this year than ever. Indeed, yeah. Although people continue to spell my name wrong, so I'm not sure how persuasive it actually is this campaign season. Right. We only have a half an hour, and there are so many things I want to ask you about. There are so many directions an attorney can go in terms of what kind of law to practice. How did you come to the decision to focus on cannabis business law, and what has the experience been like? Well, it actually started because a local criminal defense lawyer who's very well known and extremely talented, he actually had a very robust book of business dedicated almost exclusively to medical marijuana patient defense. And this was at the time when Washington State was in yet another phase of transition under our collective garden model, inevitably how we came to get it in May of 2011. This lawyer, anticipating this change in the legislature, basically came to our law firm and said, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I love criminal defense. I've done it my entire life. I really don't have the time or even the desire to learn any business law skills. I'd much rather keep on litigating criminal defense cases. However, if your firm would be interested in looking at this book, which is basically made up of medical marijuana cooperatives. At that point, though, they weren't called that. It was these medical marijuana entities that were wanting to know things about trademark, contracts, corporate structure, regulatory compliance, that he would be more than happy to have us be introduced to those particular people and look at what they wanted to do. Now, at the time, I was a youngish associate at my farm, and the partners came to me, and they said, basically, we very much like a young attorney with a lot of energy to examine this opportunity. And I'm from Florida, the Southeast, and the concept of even medical cannabis was so foreign to me. I had never really even considered it that 
I was floored even by the request, although I did not say no. I was supremely interested and eventually began to meet with folks and really realized that there was a huge demand here for business counsel, even if elementary, all the way up to the complex. So our firm decided to enter the space and to really take it on full bore, just like any other practice area. And so far, the experience has been a roller coaster, both emotionally and legally. It is an ever-moving, ever-changing target when it comes to compliance and swinging with state regulation now is really not my favorite thing to do. It's an unfortunate byproduct of quote-unquote robust regulation, but really my practice has morphed into a corporate regulatory compliance practice. So all day, Basically, what I do is I help set up, build these businesses, protect them, work on mergers and acquisitions amongst them, and at the same time, ensure that they're complying with every little minute annoying rule that the Washington <laughs> State Liquor and Cannabis Board can come up with. As Vivian, I'm, I'm sure you well know, they love to do. Man, you're singing my song. What are some of the things that take prospective cannabis business owners by surprise? Are there any predominant hidden dangers out there that people operating a startup pot business frequently fail to catch in time that's, that's unique to this industry? It's so funny. I mean, even still, I am shocked sometimes when I'll have someone come into the office and they cannot believe that it is still federally illegal. They forget that prohibition still reigns supreme, even with the Rohrbacher-Farr Amendment that passed in 2014, renewed in 2015. They do not know that they can see significant jail time by virtue of their participation. And it's even worse amongst the money people who won't yeah. actually be operating the business, right? They're just going to give money. They really don't realize that they can be slapped with aiding and abetting conspiracy. And even RICO, they, they just don't get that. And, and I think that that's lost on many newbies to the industry, but even for the seasoned person, they tend to forget the inability to get a bank account, the onerous tax implications on the federal level of even running one of these things. But more locally, I think people don't really realize how much power the Liquor and Cannabis Board has as a state agency. The fact that when the agency sees industry issues arise, they can adopt emergency rules, which become immediately effective. There is no public notice. There is no public comment. And then we have all the interim rules where these businesses' bottom lines are changing and they are affected almost on what seems like a biweekly basis. The other issue is that in the liquor board and with most state agencies, if you were to ask a liquor lawyer, they'd probably say the same thing. Different enforcement officers, different investigators have different interpretations of the law, which makes all the difference between whether or not you get an administrative violation that can put your license in jeopardy, or if you can continue to do business in the way you're doing business. And that ranges from advertising to pesticides to packaging and labeling. So I would say on the whole, the biggest pitfall that people fail to notice in addition to federal prohibition being alive and well is that these state agencies hold all the cards and the standards by which you can attack them or try to turn over their decisions are really not that great. It's very narrow. And our state did that on purpose with the Administrative Procedure Act. You cannot just pop off and sue a state agency if they have a decision that you don't like. You basically have to go through state kangaroo court or administrative court with them overseeing their own case before you'll even get into a regular court of law. I want to continue on that vein, but first, before I have to go to break here, I have about two and a half minutes. A AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety study released this past week claims that fatal accidents involving high drivers went up 6% in Washington State. 
since we decriminalized, but they also questioned that data for various reasons. In addition to the arbitrary legal limits, such as the 5 nanogram blood THC level in our state, AAA recommends that the state use a two-component system that would include a behavioral and psychological evidence of impairment test. What are your thoughts on that? Ludicrous. <laughs> Ludicrous. You know, it's the same thing with the CDC issuing general warnings about the potency of cannabis and first-time users. It's all purely anecdotal, and no legitimate science or research has gone into what impairment actually means. This is not alcohol. It is 100% different. And maybe you are a routine user and you're extremely functional. That psychological and behavioral test will have no meaning whatsoever other than to add evidence against you, I'm sure. And I think like any good libertarian, laws that cannot be enforced are bad laws. And my first question would be, how would you even do that in the field? What does that even look like? And I think, you know, unfortunately for law enforcement, they have a hard enough time anyway with this five nanograms. I think it's going to complicate their lives even more and is probably unnecessary, but most importantly, is ineffective to really tell us what impairment is at this point. And unless and until we get more legitimate research, I remain unconvinced that there is any gold standard out there for per se impairment or full-blown impairment driving while stoned. Time to roll out for the people that let us hemp present. Hang loose. We're coming right back. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Educator, author, and advocate, Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. And I'm here to clear up the myths about cannabis and burn them away with science. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Dr. Kevin Hill. You can't ignore the fact that, like alcohol, most people who use don't have a problem. So I think that you need to think about policy in that way while educating people properly about marijuana. I think that's the way to go. Burning Issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. We're back to Hemp Presents, only on Cannabis Radio. Now, back to our headstrong emperor of hemp, Vivian McPeak. And we are back on Hemp Presents, on Cannabis Radio, with Hillary Bricken. Hillary, the federal government just dismissed a lawsuit by Nebraska and Oklahoma against Colorado for threatening their border security. In a surprise move, the federal government has agreed to drop its four-year bid to shut down Oakland's Harborside Health Center, the largest medical marijuana dispensary in America, which 
frankly boasts as many patients as HempFest has attendees. This has been characterized by some as a new federal model for medical marijuana enforcement. How big a deal do you think this is with them apparently throwing in the towel on the forfeiture aspect of the Harborview case? Is this a new model or is that characterization just way premature? I think, honestly, that the Harborside case is a much bigger deal than what happened between Nebraska, Oklahoma, and Colorado. I think, essentially, SCOTUS did not want to take up the issue of Nebraska, Colorado, and Oklahoma because, at the end of the day, this is a political issue, and it's one, essentially, that in a perfect world, Congress would handle and actually listen to their constituents to do something about marijuana reform. So the dropping of that case by the Supreme Court really didn't surprise me at all. I thought it was headed that way anyway. The only issue was that it was not decided on its merits, so it's not as meaningful substantively legally for the federal government's position and what it actually is. The Harborside case, though, I think is much more telling about the strength of the policy decisions of the federal government to not only lay down arms on enforcement, but to lay down arms in the courts. And that's really big because courts can obviously set some very positive or very negative precedent for all of us. And it wasn't just the Harborside case. It's also the Mann case, which is the Marin Alliance for Medical Marijuana. That case was successful, basically right. in turning over, right, an injunction against them based on Section 538 of the Appropriations Rider last year and the year before, and that is the Rohrbacher Farr Amendment, which essentially says that the federal government cannot spend dollars on enforcing the Federal Controlled Substances Act against states when implementing medical marijuana laws. And originally, many legal experts thought, well, that doesn't have a lot of bite. It's not going to go very far. Easily, we could see the federal government not suing states over deciding to legalize medical cannabis or having some kind of medical cannabis regime. But the MAM case took it a step further. And basically, the federal judge in that case in the Northern District of California said, when I read this appropriations writer, this language to me is stronger. And essentially, you're undercutting a state's implementation of medical marijuana laws by going after state law compliant actors. And he overturned the federal government's injunction. Now, the federal government appealed that. And then again, just like in Harborside, they decided to drop the appeal. And I think they're doing that mainly for two reasons. Number one, legally, I think they're afraid they're going to get squashed by the Ninth Circuit and eventually have to go up to the Supreme Court, which is extremely risky. And number two, they simply don't have the manpower or the money to pursue these things because we have other things to worry about, like ISIS and jobs. Right. <laughs> so I, I think it's, it's also an allocation of priorities. But you know, coming on the heels of the MAM case, the Harborside case, same thing. I think the federal government is realizing what a huge waste it is to pay their executive lawyers to go in and fight these battles when at the end of the day, juries probably don't agree with them and the risk of losing can do more harm than good when we talk about preserving the Federal Controlled Substances Act with right. cannabis as a Schedule One controlled substance. So, you know, I think they're chickens and I think they're realizing that the law, at least this appropriations writer, is much stronger than they originally thought. Fascinating. I-502, the Citizens Initiative that changed cannabis law in Washington State and gave oversight on the implementation operation of cannabis retail sales to the Washington State Liquor Control Board, which now, of course, is called the Washington State Liquor and Cannabis Board. Rather than instituting a merit-based licensing program, the Cannabis Board chose to use a lottery system, which they strangely called, quote, the most fair and equitable system for issuing licenses, end quote, for retail pot shops. What's your thoughts on that? (laughs) 
I think, you know, I think this is typical of state agencies. This is the out. Lotteries don't create liability for them because they're supposed to be random. Once you get into the merit-based world of issuing licenses, that's right. when you can be attacked for your judgment. So I think it may have been the most fair and equitable system for them to avoid liability. <laughs> and inherently, lottos, lottos can be fair because they are supposed to be random. It was the back channels of how to get yourself into that lottery and your eligibility for the lottery that I think incensed stakeholders that, you know, many, many times the term gaming the system was used to describe people, for example, using a singular location in the city of Seattle to apply multiple times with different entities and straw people to get as many bids as you could get into the lottery to basically dilute everyone's chances, but your own. I think the liquor board, failed people in that respect and that they should have made it a tighter system to prevent essentially that type of fraud on the board and, and essentially on the public. Because at the end of the day, this attitude of let's game the system, let's cut these corners, that's not what this democratic experiment is supposed to be about and certainly not what decriminalization is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about access and making right. sure that we have good business people running these entities at the end of the day. That lotto did not support that at all. We don't, cannabis is a federally controlled substance. In light of that fact, if it came down to legal brass tacks, does the Liquor Control Board have any real authority if it was challenged on that level? <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's, that's a big question. I, I understand, but I just uh, I struggle with this. How does it work? It's interesting. It, well, it's really interesting. You know, I can only point back to the Harborside case, which a little different on the facts. Basically, Harborside, for those of you who don't know, forfeiture case as a product of violating federal law, the federal government in certain contexts can take your real, real and personal property, whether it's criminal, administrative, or in a civil proceeding. And with Harborside, basically what happened was that they – their property, the federal government moved to seize their property in San Jose and Oakland, two locations. The landlord stood up to fight to defend the property. Harborside also fought. And then the city of Oakland got involved, which is a government entity. And they said, hey, we have standing to be here because we receive so much benefit from Harborside being within our borders. And we get tax dollars. You know, we get human health services essentially directly from Harborside. They're a good corporate actor. We have standing to be able to keep them and protect them from this shutdown. Unfortunately, the federal judge did not agree. They appealed the decision to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit agreed they did not have standing to bring the case, and not even to bring the case, excuse me, to defend Harborside in the case. And I think the Liquor Board would have essentially better standing than the city of Oakland because they directly regulate, create, and issue these licenses. However, I could see them meeting the same fate, which is, this is federally controlled, we believe there's a conflict, and therefore you have no standing to challenge whether or not you can keep this program. So I'm not sure how it would turn out. It would really be an issue of first impression. The more interesting question is whether or not they have criminal liability, which I think the answer is clearly yes, they do, for even creating and issuing these licenses, if we're talking about a zealous prosecutor who considers just the creation of these licenses a conflict with the Federal Controlled Substances Act. Right. Because it's illegal to regulate a federally controlled substance on the state level. Is that right? I would go a step further and say it's illegal to enable these people to operate, to give oh. them a license, to engage in criminal activity. You are literally aiding and abetting and conspiring right. <laughs> to violate the Controlled Substances Act by, by virtue of this grant. And the fact that the federal government opted not to sue, I think, again, you know, with this specter of the Harborside and the MAM case, they're too afraid of losing and setting a precedent that 
would tremendously affect the position of cannabis as a Schedule One, and more importantly, the enforcement of federal laws accordingly. I think they were very worried about that, finding out that there may not actually be a positive conflict and the states can go forward with these experiments without issue. Hillary, our time is running out. Are there any cool projects that you're working on or any thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners before we have to go? Oh, man. Oh, gosh. We have, we have so many projects going on, multi-state and in and out of the state of Washington. And I just I kind of want to go back to what you said earlier, Vivian, about, you know, not using Washington as, as the model and as the example. Some days I definitely agree with you and I feel completely in step with those thoughts. I feel that it it's so complicated and so unbearably convoluted that we really have failed in the experiment and, and with our citizens, however. I do believe it's getting better. I I believe every day the liquor board is learning more and that they're taking that to heart. At the same time, I don't think cannabis is ever going to be the same again. And you're right about commoditization. I think that's on the horizon for better or worse. And recently, I just wrote an article for the Canna Law blog and Above the Law about fear, loathing, and beating Monsanto to patents. And when that conversation becomes relevant, you know things have changed forever. Um, and I'm, and sad, very I'm, I'm sad I wasn't able to get to that question because that was on my list. And we were talking to Hillary Bricken on CannabisRadio.com. and take another pause for the cause. Hear a word from our sponsors. Be right back for our final questions. Time to roll out for the people that let us hem present. Hang loose. We're coming right back. Dr. Dabber, hurry. Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber. Doctor's order. Less heat, (laughs) more flavor. Northwest Alternative Health, Eugene's premier medical marijuana clinic, is proud to sponsor the Oregon Marijuana Business Conference. Are you prepared for the changes in the recreational and medical marijuana markets? The OMB presents the state's top industry experts, along with over 40 exhibitors, and features a keynote by Dr. Carl Hart. Also, tickets include a celebrity interview and private after-party with the one and only Tommy Chong. Join us Sunday, April 24th at the downtown Eugene Hilton, and be a part of Oregon's fastest-growing industry. Check out OregonMBC.com for more details. Growing green to generate more green. Hello to all you happy herbalizers, smiling, trippy hippies, and everyone who believes in freedom and tolerance. This is The Grow Show, and I'm Kyle Cushman. From food to fuel, from remedy to resource. Welcome my guest, Ed Rosenthal, the guru of ganja. Let me ask you, right now I hear your lighter clicking. Are you smoking indoor, or are you smoking sun-grown? What am I smoking? I'm smoking concentrate. <laughs> Way to get out of the answer there. So you're truly like the, the, the king, right? You just have you just clap your hands and somebody brings you a bowl and you're all set, right? Mm, I wish that were the case. <laughs> the Grow Show with Kyle Cushman, only on CannabisRadio.com. We're back to Hemp Presents, only on Cannabis Radio. Now... Back to our headstrong emperor of hemp, Vivian McPeak. And we are back on Cannabis Radio with Hillary Bricken from the Canalog Group. Hillary, there's widespread concern among gondrepreneurs that multinationals are waiting for the cannabis industry and legal environment to stabilize so that these big corporations could come in, purchase, and consolidate with the most intimidating predator perhaps being Monsanto. 
who tweeted on 420 this year that they're not working to GMO cannabis. But since cannabis is federally illegal, that's really not a surprise. But if the feds ever lift cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act or deschedule it, that could change, right? How great is this concern that we'll be given frankenweed down the road? Ooh, you know, I think it's it's a legitimate one, but it's probably way, way, way down the road. My personal opinion is that entrepreneurs in the space now probably have a very narrow window, let's say 10 to 15 years, relatively narrow, to really get in there, protect what IP they can, given that the USPTO won't issue, for example, a trademark to you right now if you're involved in the cannabis industry. But the patent angle is much more interesting for things like utility patents and plant patents relative to the manipulation of the genetics of these particular strains, namely crossbreed and hybridizing, which I think can be really neat and doesn't necessarily have to involve GMO-type motivations, but organically crossing strains and coming up with something new, this is the window where you get in and you beat Monsanto, who is known basically for going after farmers large and specifically small for use of its GMO seeds. This is how you beat them to exclusivity on invention. And if they do want to come in, they do want to do an acquisition, hopefully you can compete with them and not be crushed by them. Or if you want to be acquiesced, you can have that option. But I think it's a really narrow window where people should really be shoring up what their IP looks like and whether or not they're eligible for a potential patent because the USPTO has actually issued a patent for genetic technology with plants and basically hybridizing them. So we know it's possible. And if people are worried about Monsanto, that's one way to kind of beat them to the table. You know so much. Were you familiar with cannabis before you entered into this cannabis law direction or, or, or have you learned all of this since then? I've really learned all of it since then. You know, I, I went to high school. I went to college. I certainly tried cannabis before. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I don't really use it now. It's not my particular substance of choice. But all of this legal kind of emerging legal monster behind this substance I've only really come to know in the past six years because frankly before then it really didn't exist and if it did it was in the context of criminal prosecution and civil liberties but now we're getting in to the cutting edge of business dealings regulatory structures and compliance it's very neat and I feel extremely fortunate you are pioneering an emergent global industry that's probably going to like take over the world at some point. How does that feel? <laughs> it feels sinister. No, it, it, feels, <laughs> it feels pretty good. It's, it's amazing. I don't think I'll be afforded this opportunity twice in a lifetime. You know, think if you would have been there for any major industry, whether it would have been automobiles, airplanes, alcohol, you name it, on a consumer good, to be there while it's birthed and at the same time to undo so many years of oppression and to really get some criminal justice reform done, it's even better. That's why it's better than a car. It's better than a car. It's better than clothing. It's better. I think it's better than anything. I'm obviously biased, but it's it's so right to be on the side of the argument that I feel pretty good every day. Yeah. I mean, I've got over 30 years of working full-time for cannabis legalization reform. And the one thing I can tell people is it's one of the only subjects I work on where I not a fiber of my nano bean questions whether I'm on the moral right side of this. I mean, there's very few things in my life that I, I don't question. <laughs> that level. But this is one of yeah, them. You know. I agree. I agree. Can you touch on the issue of valuation of a state legal cannabis business in the midst of federal prohibition or, in other words, for our listeners, assessing the value of a current pot business, which is complicated as what other business is operating in a state legal but federally illegal environment? 
there, there really is no other comparable. And essentially, valuation in every state has been all over the board. And when we talk about assets, it's even harder to qualify what an actual asset is other than, for example, your real estate, your leasehold, or your relationships with your vendors. Qualifying the value of essentially the inventory going to be all over the place depending on resale value and, frankly, how much it costs to even cultivate it. And that's going to differ from state to state, whether it's outdoor, indoor, or mixed light. And it's really impossible to kind of garner an average here over what these businesses should be. And I'll tell you, in my personal experience, I have seen relatively large-scale cultivation facilities, 10,000 to 30,000 square feet, selling anywhere from you know $200,000 to this morning. I had someone email me saying, if you know anyone who's interested, I will sell you my fully functioning Tier 3, which is the largest tier in Washington, functioning grow and processing facility for $3 million, just a cool $3 million. So it's, it's really been all over the place. And I still think as the market stabilizes, it's going to take a while to get an average valuation on a company. And essentially how you value the company at this point, just like any other company, you look at the risks, you look at the assets. In this industry, much easier to look at the risks and then do the calculation. I want to get to the issue of tourism, which is another area that I think our state has just pathetically failed. How boneheaded is it that our state legislature has gutted our ability to attract can of tourism in Washington State? I mean it's illegal to share a joint. Pot lounges of any kind are not permitted, and there's nowhere for tourists to legally imbibe unless they can convince someone to let them into their house. How important is on-site consumption to pot businesses in your opinion? I think it should be much more important than it is right now. I think if it was available, you would see every dispensary in the state of Washington offering a vape lounge or some equivalent. I think Alaska is perfectly on point. They are the only recreational state that is considering even allowing on-site consumption as part of a dispensary's line of business. And I think it's extremely smart. Part of the success of this democratic experiment is not necessarily just social justice reform or creating more revenue share for the state through the sale of essentially a vice good. It's also the social normalization of cannabis as compared to alcohol, candy, coffee. I don't care. It could be anything. Without that, if you're going to make people continue to feel like criminals, they may in fact act like criminals and incentivizes bad and reckless behavior not to be able to use in the open, essentially like alcohol, when the health effects, the social effects aren't half as destructive as alcohol. It's very hypocritical. And I think it's a huge mistake. I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, people drinking alcohol can routinely be belligerent or violent or lose inhibitions or be inappropriate. And pot just seems to just, I mean, I've never in my whole life seen anyone walking down the street. I said, look how high on pot that guy is. But how many times (laughs) have you seen somebody drunk who couldn't even function? You know, I, just, I know. Eh, it's just I know. ludicrous. I'm going to ask you to take out your crystal ball and polish it off. Do you think that we'll see Schedule 2 before we see descheduling? Obviously, I'm against Schedule 2. I think it would be a massive mistake. I'm just curious. Like, do you have any feel for all of this, like how long it might take or what might happen next? Mm, I, I mean, don't, I, it's, it's, I don't, I don't know. I, I, crystal ball. Well, it really does. And, you know, this this alleged dialogue around Schedule 2 from the DEA because they're now, you know, examining it. Don't get excited, people. They've done this before. And then the notorious routine is drag their feet, drag their feet, lip service to politicians, and inevitably they say no. And I don't think that it's going to change this time around either. And now that we're rounding out four adult use states, potentially maybe even double that in the next two years, the conversation 
conversation is going to shift about how we treat cannabis and where it belongs in our health regulatory regime, whether we should treat it like Tylenol over the counter, whether it should be prescribed like Percocet, whether it should be treated like a handle of Jack Daniels. The states are going to dictate the policy on that. And the quicker, this is my personal opinion, the quicker more states jump from a singular medical regime to either a harmonious dual regime with both adult use and medical, or if you want to proceed like Washington did for whatever reason to fully combine the two under one system, the sooner we do that, I think the sooner our federal government, they too will consider simply removing it altogether from any scheduling and keeping it essentially in the hands of private entrepreneurs, more like the alcohol industry than let's say pumping it into big pharma in their hands. Hillary Bricken of the Canalog Group, thank you so much for taking time out to talk with me. I've enjoyed talking with you so much. Yes, likewise, Vivian. I appreciate it. All right. You take care. Thanks. Now, I want to get to a weekly feature him present on CannabisRadio.com. It's the quote of the week, and here it is. If you violate nature's laws, you are your own prosecuting attorney, judge, jury, and hangman. That is American botanist, horticulturist, and pioneer in agricultural science, Luther Burbank. That concludes this installment of Hemp Present on Cannabis Radio. I want to thank my power peeps in the control room, Hannah and Brasco, and all the Cannabis Radio sponsors and advertisers. Join me next week for more cannabis confabulation and reefer repartee with some hempy here on a journey to justice because when it comes to prohibition, you have the right not to remain silent. Activism requires a voice, so find yours and speak up for justice because resistance is fertile. Until then, my friends, stay strong, stand tall, and token. It easy. Don't forget to email me at hampersand at gmail.com. The Hampersand theme song, Take Back the Plan, is performed by Sticker Bush and sung by a much younger version of myself. Turn up the music, maestro. I'm out. Marijuana! The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.